0: Please open your Bibles, if you've not, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As Mick read for us, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17. And this passage opens with a couple of statements. Everything is permissible for me, and food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food, and God will destroy them both. These were first century slogans that the church at Corinth had adopted and had sort of shaped their belief and practice. And we recognize that slogans, these little pithy sayings, have power. They they have the ability to sort of summarize an idea or a truth or even a brand and present it to us in a way that kind of captures our minds and our hearts. Our culture uses slogans all the time when it comes to branding products. Let's test your slogan knowledge here. We'll do a little slogan trivia for you. If I were to say, just do it. Nike, very good. How about breakfast of champions? Wheaties, very good. I'm loving it. McDonald's. Good. How about this one? What's in your wallet? Capital One. One. There you go. Yes. (laughs) We even use slogans here at First City Church. Things like, the gospel changes everything, and the church is a people, not a place. These are sayings that summarize very important core truths of who we are, and we use them to shape our minds and our hearts. Slogans not only have a power in our world when it's related to brands, but they also have a power to shape our beliefs and our values and our morals and our behavior. And because of the power of slogans, it's no wonder that our culture employs them. And, and you could even call sort of the modern-day slogan the hashtag on social media. Use these all over the place, and you would be familiar with some of them. And we've talked about these before on Sunday morning. Examples like, speak your truth, love is love, my body, my choice. And these are slogans that carry particular power and influence in our culture. And here's what is fascinating, that the beliefs underneath those slogans in many ways parallel the exact slogans talked about in 1 Corinthians 6. The the, the beliefs and the morals and the ethics that were underneath the, the everything is permissible and food is for the stomach and God is going to destroy them both are similar in many ways. The language may be different, but belief is similar to the slogans Of our day. And not only are the beliefs similar, but the effect on culture, the effect on us individually, and the effect on culture at large is similar, especially when it comes to sexual ethics. Because there's a great irony that God's word is going to point out for us this morning. See, the slogans of the Corinthians and the slogans of today, that they want to assert personal freedom and personal autonomy over our bodies. And in that, they say, hey, we're actually holding up the body with value. But the irony of it all, as we're going to see, is actually these slogans minimize the body. They minimize the worth and the value and the purpose of your body. Because in chasing pleasure and self-definition and personal autonomy, our bodies are not something that we honor, but are something that we use, something that we sacrifice, something that we even alter and damage for our pleasure, for our inner peace, and for asserting our identity and our autonomy. And so God's word comes to us this morning and challenges these slogans that that we're so susceptible to being shaped by. And here's the essence of this passage. Here's the, the message that I want you to ring, that I want to ring clearly in your ears this morning is this. Your body matters, so glorify God with your body. Your body matters, and so glorify God with your body. Look, your body isn't just disposable matter. It isn't something just to be used up and sacrificed and altered and even damaged for your pleasure or for the pursuit of inner peace or for your own self-autonomy. Like your body was made with special honor and has a special purpose. And that's what is going to be held out for us this morning in these verses. And so this is such an important idea that we're actually going to take two weeks to kind of hang on this idea. So this week, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17, and next week, We're going to finish off with 18 18 through 20. The entire section is sort of one main idea, and Paul uses some different imagery, and so we want to just take time to look at the different things that he, the different imagery that he uses because it's worth reflecting on. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. First, I want to spend some time looking at the beliefs that are underneath these slogans and then how they parallel the beliefs and attitudes and morals of of today. And then I want to look at the way Paul and God's word through the Apostle Paul challenges these slogans and challenges us even in this day, and and to emphasize the point that our bodies matter and that we're called to glorify God with our bodies. So let's let's first spend just a little bit of time here unpacking the meaning of these slogans. So in verses twelve and thirteen, Paul quotes these two popular slogans among the Corinthians: "Everything is permissible, and food is for the stomach, and stomach for food, and God will do away with them both." Now, just a little bit of a technical note here: in your Bibles, if you look at those quotes, it your Bible may just have quotation marks around food is for the stomach and the stomach for food as if that's just the quote, but actually the entire thing is the quotes. And so just to kind of keep that in mind, it's, these, are, these are two quotes altogether. together. And why did these slogans po- pop up in 1 Corinthians 6? What are they doing here? Well, the letter, so the book of 1 Corinthians is actually a letter and it's, a, it's one of many letters that the Apostle Paul had back and forth with the church of Corinth. Now we have two of these letters, First and Second Corinthians. But in these, in these letters, there are references to others. And so there were a numerous letters back and forth. And the belief is, is that in the letter prior, written to Paul by the church of Corinth, prior to Paul writing 1 Corinthians, they were using these slogans to justify their behavior. And so Paul is going to say, all right, you want to use these slogans, let's go there. Let me address these slogans that you find so popular and are shaping your beliefs and your attitudes and your actions. And so the first one, everything is permissible for me. Now, where this slogan comes from, we don't don't know, but there are similar type slogans all over the place in Greek and Roman philosophies. This was a popular notion in Greek philosophy. Scholars also believe that this quote might have been a distortion by the Corinthians of the Apostle Paul's teaching of freedom in Christ. And so Paul comes and teaches them about this great freedom we have in Christ, and they want to twist it and distort it and take it further than Paul ever taught Regardless of where it came from, here's the essence of it. Here's the heart of the slogan I have freedom to do as I please. In the Greek, the literal translation is everything is lawful for me, everything is legal for me. I have authority to do as I please. For the Greeks and Romans, they used this to justify sexual immorality and indulging in food and drink. That they use it to justify the, the pursuit of autonomy and self-definition and power and status and feeding their own desire and pleasure. And that being the case, I think you can hear the echo of this slogan and slogans of today. I am free to do as I please. I am free to live my truth. My body, my rules. About the example Pastor Paul gave last week of a mother's response to uh, a particular celebrity coming out as non binary in her sexuality. I, I, the, the slogan captures, or their, her statement captures the slogan so well, I'm stealing one of Paul's examples. This is what the mother said Wanting to set up your life in a way that you can have it, what it is that you want, I think anything goes as long as intentions are clear. Anything goes. Everything is permissible. We can also hear this, sadly in the church. How often can we hear people using freedom in Christ as a way to justify foolish or sinful behavior? How often can people say, hey, stop being legalistic. Don't don't, don't be legal! Don't put that on me. Don't be be legalistic with me as a way to justify sinful behavior. And here's the sad effects of this. In August of 2020, the Pew Research Center found that 50% of American Christians overall and 36% of evangelicals believe that casual sex between consenting adults is always or sometimes acceptable. And the same poll found that 57% of American Christians overall and 46% of evangelicals believe that sex between committed but unmarried adults is always or sometimes acceptable. Everything is permissible. In our culture, the slogan holds up personal autonomy and freedom and if it's not the ultimate value it's pretty close to the ultimate value the second slogan food is for the stomach and stomach for food and god will do away with both of them on the surface this may appear like these are just like two randomly connected not even really connected slogans but they actually are connected and so here's the essence of this slogan the body is meant for pleasure and one day the body is going to pass away so food is for the stomach, meaning God created our bodies to experience pleasure, and then he created things to give us pleasure. And so our stomachs get hungry, we get hungry, and we eat food, and we experience pleasure through eating in our stomach. And what does our stomach do with the food? Digest it so we can eat more food and get more pleasure. And so there's a cycle here. And there's a sense that this is true. God did create our bodies to experience pleasure. The other part of this, this statement is saying, hey, our bodies are also going to pass away. One day, God is going to destroy food and destroy our body. And so what you essentially have here is our bodies are made for pleasure, and then you die. (laughs) Experience pleasure, and then you pass on. And so if you put these two together, here's essentially, if you put the two slogans together, here's essentially what the, the Corinthian church is wanting to argue. If everything is permissible and I have needs and desires to be satisfied, and ultimately my body will be destroyed, meaning it's going to pass away, that I'm free to do with my body as I choose. Like, I am free to pursue as much pleasure as I can because one day my body isn't going to exist. And this was an interesting part about Greek philosophy that influenced the church. Greek philosophy taught that someday our physical bodies will disappear and will sort of exist as spirits. And so ultimately what matters is the immaterial, not the physical. And if the physical doesn't matter, if it's just transient and passing through, then boy, feed those pleasures. Get as much pleasure as you can because one day you won't have your body to experience that pleasure. This is what the Corinthians had bought into. This is how they were, this is, they believe, these beliefs were affecting how they were using their body. And it didn't just apply to food. They were also applying it to their desire for sex if everything is permissible, and one day my body and the act of sex are going to pass away, then look, I'm free to pursue sexual pleasure until I don't have a body anymore. And so consider these slogans. Pursue the pleasure your body was made for because one day your body will pass away. What what ultimately matters is not your physical body, but the immaterial part of you, the internal part of you. Do these not sound like some of the beliefs and the slogans of today. Are we not told that if it makes us feel good, we should do it? Are we not told that it's the immaterial part of us, meaning our psychology and our inner desires and our inner longings and our inner identity? Are we not told that that's what matters and not our bodies or our biology? Like if your body or your biology conflicts with your inner desires, then you're free to change your body. You're free to to alter and even damage your body so that the immaterial part gets what it wants. Are these not similar ideas? Are these not these slogans not speak right into some of the beliefs and practices in our day? When when we set to go out when we set out to go through 1 Corinthians back in the fall, like I'm always confident God has something to say to us because his word is always relevant. But but I, I think I underestimated just how closely God's word would speak into our current situation. Separated by 2,000 years, and yet here you have the same philosophy packaged in a little bit different words, but similar philosophy, similar belief, similar ethics back in Corinth as today. So this is the essence of the slogans. Now let's look at how God's word through the Apostle Paul challenges these. And so he takes the first slogan apart in two ways. He first responds to everything is permissible for me by stating, but not everything is beneficial. Sure, there's freedom. There there is freedom, and there is tremendous freedom in Christ even. However, to kind of roughly quote Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, just because you should, or because you can, doesn't mean you should. And this is the essence of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's like, look, yes, there is freedom, but there's something bigger than that. There's something greater than that. Corinthians, you want to say everything is permissible. And even if that were the case... Everything you could do, you shouldn't do because not everything is beneficial. Some translations have helpful. Not everything is beneficial, meaning not everything is good or wise. Not everything brings about the benefits of other people. And so, so here's, here, here's the essence of what the Apostle Paul's saying, and especially brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus, children of God. Our greatest ethic is not living by our own personal freedom. Look, and this is hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes because we live in America where, hey, this is America, Jack. Keep your laws off my body. I can do whatever I want. We're inundated with personal freedom as the highest ethic. But here God's word says there's something greater than that, something bigger than that. What is it? What is beneficial? Meaning, what is loving? What is good? What is wise? What, what is, goes beyond myself and looks out at other people? Oh, things may be permissible. There is freedom. But we live by something greater what is good and wise and beneficial to others what builds other people up when it comes to how we use our bodies we aren't self-focused we're others focused we lay down our rights we lay down our freedoms for the sake of others because that's what jesus did for us how we use our bodies is different than just chasing freedom and pleasure and autonomy because friends everything is permissible is the kind of self-focus and self-regard that flies in the face of the second commandment, which is to love others. Everything is permissible is an ethic of self and self-regard. If you live by that, you're living for yourself and nothing else. And look, could not our culture do with a healthy correction? We like to flout our freedom, and sometimes Christians are the worst at this. But here's scripture calling us to something greater, something deeper, goodness, wisdom, helpfulness, benefiting others and building them up. Paul next undermines the slogan, everything is permissible, by stating, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so there's a little bit of a play on words in the Greek that's hard to see here. The words permissible and mastered, they have the same root. So so Paul's throwing this ironic curveball back at them. The Corinthians want to say, everything is permissible. We have the freedom to act. And Paul says, yes, but I will not be mastered by freedom. I will not be enslaved by freedom. You think chasing freedom, everything is permissible, is actually the pathway to living free? And Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you that's the pathway to slavery. That's the pathway to being mastered, not freedom. In other words, Corinthians, your pride and your inflated spirituality that leads you to believe that you have the freedom to use your body for whatever you want, there's a great irony. Your body actually becomes bound and mastered by your freedom. The desires that you indulge have enslaved you. There there, there is great irony here for us, and there's great irony to be exposed in the slogans of of, of today. Promise freedom, but lead to slavery. They promise freedom, and they lead to things like addiction, but it's not just those who are clinically addicted to drugs and alcohol and sex that have this issue. We, we don't have to be addicts to be enslaved to our, in our pursuit of freedom, to be enslaved by our desires. Here's a helpful way to, to consider whether you are. Say no. Say no to yourself. Whenever there's a certain desire or certain need that you, you say, hey, I have the freedom to do that. So consider it this way. Look, freedom in Christ. We are, have freedom in Christ to eat food. And enjoy food. We have freedom in Christ to have a glass of wine or have a beer. There's freedom in Christ to spend money. But can you say no to those things? When when there's an impulse, when there's a desire, can you say, no, I don't actually have to do that. I can lay that down for the sake of Christ and the sake of freedom. If you can't, then you become enslaved to your desire. You've been mastered by your freedom rather than walking in freedom. And so here in, in dismantling this slogan God's word, through the Apostle Paul, has called us to two things. One, to a greater ethic than self. Live for what is good and beneficial and wise and builds others up. And second, walk in freedom. Not the freedom the world promises that leads to enslavement, but the freedom that is in Christ. This is is what Paul calls us to do with our bodies. Walk with a greater ethic and walk in freedom. So after dismantling the first slogan... Paul goes after the second as he turns his attention really specifically to confronting sexual immorality. And I noted this earlier, but the logic of the slogan in verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with them both, was, was being applied to, sec- to justify sexual immorality. So Paul confronts their logic this way. He says, however, the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And so again, there's a little bit of an agreement and then a challenge and a disagreement. Paul does not deny the first part of the statement. He doesn't deny that our bodies are actually meant to experience pleasure, and God gives us gifts to experience pleasure. Look, Scripture is not anti-pleasure. Scripture speaks of great celebration and great joy and great feasting. You know, heaven's gonna be a party, right? And there's gonna be food and wine, and it's gonna be a wonderful celebration. The Bible is not anti-pleasure. However, here's where Paul pushes back Here's where the difference comes. The problem isn't that there is pleasure. The problem is that when we chase it at any cost, when we chase it at the cost of violating God's word, violating what is good and true and beautiful, and even doing damage to our own body. Food may be for the stomach and the stomach for food, but look, that doesn't mean that your body is for sexual immorality. That doesn't mean that you can just give your body to whatever. Your body is called to something greater than just sexual immorality called the great something greater than just pursuing pleasure the purpose of your body is not to indulge in sexual immorality or other sinful pleasures but as paul says here to serve the lord it's for the lord you were created your body was given to you to serve god to serve the glorious king of the universe it was given for great purpose to glorify the our our great god and savior to, to live in relationship with him to know him That's what your body was given for. Your body has greater purpose than just merely chasing pleasure, fleeting pleasure at that. Look, if pleasure was the greatest thing to chase, why does it last mere seconds, mere minutes? You you can see the ultimate worth and value in pleasure by how long it lasts. Paul's calling you to use your body for something far greater. And the Lord is for the body. It's not just that your body is for the Lord, but the Lord is for the body. And here's what's beautiful about where Paul goes with this. Not only is he saying, hey, use your body for great purpose, but he's also saying the Lord has great purpose for your body. That The Lord has something wonderful beyond just mere pleasure and not to destroy your body, but actually to resurrect and glorify it. Here's what he says in verse 14. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He's completely challenging and dismantling and saying nope this is false god is not going to destroy your body if you believe that i'm sorry that's not christianity christianity teaches that god is going to resurrect our bodies and glorify our bodies eternity is going to be a physical reality a reality completely transformed by the spirit where everything is renewed and glorified yes but it's going to be physical and so here's god's plan for your body not to destroy it but to raise it and glorify it and sets you free from sin and sickness and disease and disability, never again to be afflicted with those things, but to live in eternity with a glorified body. That's the end, that's the tell us, that's where your body is headed. If that's where your body is headed, your body matters. And glorify God with your body. If that's where our bodies are headed, then we live for something far greater than just mere fleeting pleasure. From this point, Paul, he continues to emphasize that our bodies matter by by kind of pushing deeper into a union with Christ. So here's what he writes, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So, So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So there's actually two unions Paul's talking about. The first is our union with Christ. Our, our for, for those of us who are in Christ, we've been united to him by the Spirit. There's this wonderful spiritual reality that our life is in him and his life is in us. Where we are intimately and vitally and supernaturally transformed or united to Christ, and this transforms us, transforms our identity. And in that spiritual union, it also affects our body. It completely changes how we use our body. And so look, if you want to talk about the immaterial defining how you use your body, to some degree that's true. It's just not your psyche or your inner desires or your sort of your inner sense of self. It's union with Christ. That is what defines how we use our body. The other union here that Paul's pointing to is the union that takes place through sexual intercourse. And this too is a physical and spiritual union. Sex is a physical union to be sure, but there's also a spiritual union. When husband and wife come together in a covenantal, committed marriage, and, and they the sexual act of sexual intercourse, they are uniting not just physically but spiritually. And, and that connection is meant to take place in marriage. It is such a powerful and beautiful and meaning union and intimacy that it is it is intended to be experienced. Within marriage. And so here's what happens with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is to violate the physical and spiritual union that takes place in sexual intercourse. Sexual immorality is essentially a lie. It's saying this, I'm going to do something with my body and act with my body that's intended to, co- to communicate. I'm giving myself to you. I'm committed to you for life. I'm sacrificing myself. I'm laying down my life for you. That's what it's intended to communicate, but it removes all of that purely for pleasure. It's a lie. It's communicating to some, somebody a lie. Also, if you're a Christian, if you've been united to Christ, to engage in sexual immorality is to sin against and dishonor the union you have with Christ. But Paul says, should I unite a part of Christ's body with a prostitute? He's like, am I gonna unite Christ's body with someone who's living in sexual rebellion? Paul's like, why would I do that? Why would we do that? Why would we dishonor and sin against this wonderful union we have with Christ? Your body matters. What you do with your body touches spiritual realities, not just physical, but spiritual realities. And because of that, because of that, what we do with our body matters, and we're called to glorify God. And so let me me just kind of springboard here and, and kind of hone in again on this issue of sexual immorality because what you do with your body matters and what you do with your body sexually matters profoundly. I mean, have you ever considered why the Bible talks so much about sex? I mean, some, some people may think, well, because it's trying to repress us. It's because the Bible's anti-fun and anti-pleasure. But, but could it be actually the Bible's after you're good could it be that the reason the Bible addresses sex the way it does is because sex is such a powerful and beautiful reality that when it is distorted, brings intense and incredible pain and damage? I mean, I mean think about the damage sexual sin does to people physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And I think of the damage that things like sexual abuse, and rape, and adultery, and pornography, and sex outside of a covenantal marriage, how how all of these things do tremendous damage. Why is it so damaging? Because sex touches us at the deepest part of our physical and spiritual being. It touches us right at the core of what it means to be made in the image of God. We're we're dealing with spiritual nuclear power here. And so if you wanted to wreck people in the worst possible way, If you wanted to damage people in the deepest way, damage them sexually or get them to damage themselves sexually. Counselor Jay Stringer, in his book, Unwanted, I think he, he explains this so well. He gets at this so well. He writes, the evil one, Satan, wants to destroy the glory of God, but he cannot. Therefore, he goes after what most images this God, women, men, boys, and girls, In the same way that a terrorist might attack children of a president because a direct attack is too risky, the evil one seeks to mar the distinctive beauty that God gives to us as his children. If you were to set out to attack the image of God, you would need to do more than ridicule how worthless a human pinky toe appears. Instead, you would plot after the most vulnerable, beautiful, and powerful dimension of who we are, sexuality. Evil hates the beauty of sex, and because it cannot abolish its existence, it works to corrupt its essence. For some reason, I've been on this nuclear power analogy kick. I used one a couple weeks ago. I'm going to use one again this morning. I don't know where that came from, but I think it works. (laughs) Sex is this beautiful, powerful thing that if harnessed correctly, if put within the correct boundaries of a covenantal marriage, what does it do? It creates the deepest physical and spiritual intimacy. It brings forth life It brings forth flourishing, not only in a family, but in in society. Like properly used, just as nuclear energy is properly used. Powerful, powerful stuff. However, step outside of those boundaries, and it is devastating and damaged, just like nuclear power, not only just in a moment of a nuclear blast, but the fallout that happens for years and decades. And, And so when you think about the sexual ethic of our culture, Well, what's the highest ethic when it comes to sex in our culture? Consent. As long as you have consent, anything goes. But do you know what? Setting the boundary of consent, as as that's the boundary for something as powerful as sex is, it's like surrounding the nuclear codes uh, for the United States military with ticker tape. Like, you would never guard the nuclear codes because of the power that's there And the damage that could happen if that falls into the wrong hands with mere ticker tape. No, we bury it in a bunker through, you know, 15 layers of security and dudes with big guns that could just, you know, do some damage. Like the utmost respect and protection. Why? Because of the power. That's why God gave us this incredible, incredible, incredible thing called marriage. To harness this incredible, incredible, incredible power called sex. And so the Bible is not anti-sex. The Bible is not anti-pleasure. Rather, the Bible says your body matters and how you use your body matters. Now, hearing a passage like this, there can be, I think, two main responses, so I want to address kind of two groups here. First, some of you, maybe you are living these slogans and these beliefs in just abject pride. Maybe you're chasing pleasure, chasing the pursuit of self, and you're just doing it in a prideful way and you're like, yeah, this is where I'm living. I get to define myself. I get to chase what makes me feel good, and no one's going to tell me otherwise. Well, here's what God's word tells you this morning. One, all you're living for is self. That's the highest good that you're living for is self, and there's stuff far greater than that. Second, you think you're living in freedom, but you're actually enslaved. The the, the reality is that you have become a slave to your desires. Now, for others in the room, and I, I, I would venture for the majority of you in the room, you hear a message like this, you hear a passage like this, and here's what can happen, guilt and shame. Like you know you've been this person. Like you know you've fallen into sexual sin. And, and maybe you're living in that right now. Or, or maybe you've experienced the brokenness and the damage and the pain of sexual sin, and you're carrying those scars, and they hurt deeply. Here's what I want to encourage you in. Because God's word gives us so much encouragement. Yes, the Apostle Paul is bringing a strong rebuke. Yes, he is challenging and he's pushing. But what is underneath this is something powerful and beautiful and great hope. Because underneath this rebuke is a reminder, hey, if you're in Christ, you've been united to Christ. If you're in Christ, the power of Christ is in you and you have been transformed, you've been set free, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And so even if you are living in sin, if you've been united to Christ, there's hope for you, there's power for you, there's freedom for you. Romans 6, Romans 6, I I, want to just try to move through this passage quick, but Romans 6, verses 4 through 11, just beautifully, beautifully point out what is true of us if we were united to Christ. Here, here's, the, the words of be on the screen so you don't have to, to, to turn there. But here's what the Apostle Paul in a different letter writes about union with Christ. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. This is what is true of you if you are in Christ. When Jesus went into the grave, he took your sin, and he buried it there. And if you are in Christ, the power of sin has been broken. And so even if you have gone back, and even if you find yourself enslaved, look, you're not under the rule and reign of sin anymore. You you may have gone back, and you may be lying to yourself and letting sin lie to you, but if you're in Christ, the truth is your sin has been dead and buried, and you're free. Not only that, not only has our sin been buried. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Look, if you are in Christ, here's the guarantee that you've been set free from sin. Because Christ got up out of the grave, and when he rose to new life, your new life came with him, and he ascended into heaven. And the only way The only way that that, the power of Christ can be broken is if someone goes into heaven, drags him off the throne, and throws him back in the grave. That ain't happening. Because he is the resurrected and reigning king, new life in Christ, power for you, freedom for you, cleansing from you. In light of all of that... So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, if you're united to Christ, you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so if your sin wants to lie to you, if your sin is beating you up and telling you you're stuck here, don't listen. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And may I also say this, because I I know how this can go because this is my own story, especially when we're dealing with sexual sin. Here's how we can do this. Stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning. I need to have accountability. I need to have all the filters. Stop sinning, stop sinning. We become obsessed with what Christ put in the grave. We become obsessed with our sin and and trying to control our behavior and trying to stop sinning by beating ourselves up. Friends, that's not how God has called you to fight your sin. That's not how God has called you to live. Stop looking in your grave and look to Christ. Christ. Stop looking at what he buried and start looking at him, the resurrected and reigning king. Stop start worshiping Him, glorifying Him. Commune with him in his word and in prayer. Worship Him, follow him. Give your life to something bigger than self. Start serving God and loving others. Focus on what is true and good and beautiful, the victory we have in Christ. Friends, we're so good at focusing on our sin. We're less good at focusing on Christ. Now, you may think, well, if I don't focus on my sin, how am I going to know about my sin? Do you think if you focus on Christ, you're not going to know about your sin? You're, you're not going to see how glorious Christ is. And what he's calling you to repent and turn of, oh, he's kind and he will do that. But you don't need to focus there. Focus on Christ and walk in freedom. Walk in freedom that you have in Jesus. No matter the sexual sin that you've committed, no matter the sexual sin that has been committed against you, Jesus claims you body and soul. He's cleansed you body and soul, and he's going to resurrect you body and soul. That is who you are, and that's where you're headed if you're in Christ. Again, I I love um, how Jay Stringer is helpful here. he, He talks about battling particularly sexual sin. This is what he says. When sin and addiction language overshadows our belovedness, the inevitable outcome is clinical and theological approaches that rely heavily on behavior modification. When sin and addiction language help reveal and connect us to our belovedness, when your sin takes you to Jesus, causes you to look to Christ and run in trust in Christ, the desire to change comes from per- the pursuit of beauty, not our self-contempt or latest strategy to combat sexual desire. If you're fighting sin through self-contempt, That's not how Christ has called you. That's not how he expects you to live. So friends, as we walk in a culture that's gonna tell you everything's permissible and try to enslave you to your quote-unquote freedom, let us be a people that focus on Christ and look to Jesus and walk in the freedom that he has given us. And look, to do this, we need each other. And so let me just conclude by saying this. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sexual sin, one, you're not alone. You're not alone. You have brothers and sisters who want to walk with you, and you need them. Bring that into the lights. Bring that in, not only just confessing that to Christ, but bring that to other brothers and sisters. And look, I'm not just talking to the dudes in the room. Sometimes messages like this, they think it's for the guys. Ladies, I know the struggle is real for you as well. And so whether your, your sin is something that is really recent or something you've been battling for a long time, bring it here into community and let us walk with you and love you and follow Jesus with you and help you. That's the encouragement that God's Christ's body brings to us. Friends, we have so much hope. We have so much power in Christ. Let's fix our eyes there. Amen. Let's pray.